Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you here. You know, I'm waxing nostalgic today because my guest also happens to be a longtime friend of mine. You might know of Sean Tuma as a data privacy and cybersecurity lawyer at Spencer Fane in their Dallas and Plano offices. I know him as the guy who knew stuff before the rest of us did. And honestly, guys, Sean, this is really annoying about you, but hey, let's let's tell him anyway. So back in 2012 or 2013, around that time, Sean had predicted that there would be this little excerpt of Dallas that would become one of the hottest growing cities in the United States. He predicted that companies would move there, major institutions would set up shop there, and that the entire epicenter of the Metroplex would seismically shift northward. That little excerpt was called Frisco, Texas, and Sean was right. Sean had also predicted that lawyers would need to focus on cybersecurity, not only for their clients, but for their own practices. He talked to firms moving their data to the, quote, cloud and having to take greater steps to secure that data from unwanted breaches. I don't know why I said that. Is there ever really a wanted breach? I Anyway, so, you know, he was right yet again. We used to be taught to keep our data siloed on our laptops. I don't know if you guys remember that. And now here we are accessing this, these things called VPN tunnels and, and clouding up our practices. Well, the Texas legislature recently enacted the Texas Data Privacy and Security Act. This act goes into effect on July 1st, 2024. We need to figure out its impact on lawyers and their clients and what the heck this all even means. And I'm not smart enough to figure that out. So I figured who better to ask than Sean? Now pay close attention to what Sean says, because if he's wrong, I'd really rub, I'd love to just rub his face in it. This would be the most fun I've had in years. So Sean Tumo, welcome to the podcast, or should I say welcome back? Good to have you, man. Rocky, thank you so much for having me back on. Man, it's always a pleasure. And I just want to tell you, you know, yeah, sometimes, you <laughs> know, what do they say? Even even a, uh, what is it, a blind squirrel gets a nut sometimes or whatever. You know, I'm not always right. This whole thing for me started back in 1998 when I thought Y2K was going to be my rocket ship to stardom and early retirement. As I uh, jumped on the bandwagon to be, you know, a Y2K legal expert and we remember how that one went. Oh, so, yeah. uh, but, but it's important. And I'm, I bring that up to make a distinction. People often ask me, you know, why don't, you know, we were able to fix Y2K and avoid most of that issue. Why can't we just fix cybersecurity, mm. um, which dovetails into data privacy because we're, we're focused on protecting the privacy of personal information. And the reason is because Y2K was a problem. It was a code error that could be corrected. Cybersecurity is a human behavioral issue. It's war. Mm. And um, we're engaged every day in, in battles with uh, adversaries that are fighting against us and against our networks. And so it's not just a problem that can be fixed with code. But uh, anyway, it's great well, to be back. Thank you. Plus, our adversaries in this are are much more comfortable than we are. They get to work from home and they're probably in their in their parents' basements doing this. So it's it's a whole it's a whole nother whole nother world I guess we're dealing with. It is. And you know, that's a good point you make because the the adversaries cover the entire spectrum. At the top you have your your very best 
you know, nation state at least trained folks who who are like the equivalent of our U.S. militaries, you know, sure. Navy SEALs or Delta Force or whatever else, who are the best of the best at this. And then they have created a system to now use the exponential reach of the script kiddies in the parents' basements by by this service, this this ransomware and you know cyber attack as a service type thing where they can use all these other folks to use their tool sets to go out and do harm. And so um, it's just continuous battle. It's very difficult. So I assume now you've heard of this Texas Data Privacy and Security Act. If you haven't, Sean, we'll give you a few minutes. You can read up on it and just read the act. We'll just thumb through it. And then well, it's 39 pages. So my thumbing through, uh, <laughs> I don't thumb that quick. So look, with this, this, this act that, that we've just enacted, what's, do you know what brought it about? I mean, because I, I thought there'd be a federal level law that kind of covers all this. It's it looks like there's a few states, Texas being one of them. I guess we're the twelfth one to enact something like this. What's the idea behind a state level data privacy act? Yeah. So so what we're seeing is federalism at its finest, really. Um, and and I'm a huge proponent of federalism, and I'm actually somewhat why I'm here in Texas, right? Someone who uh, believes we would benefit from a, a comprehensive federal piece of legislation that covers all this, but um, I know from from my personal time in uh, visiting members of Congress a few years back, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's, uh, there are a multitude of reasons, but there, there's too many challenges to be addressed for comprehensive federal legislation. Hmm. Too many committees would have to cede power to one committee to do it, and I don't think that's going to happen. And so what we're seeing is these sectoral approaches of like healthcare or SEC coming out with their rules and FTC and these kind of, you know, piecemeal, even on the federal level. And so what that's done is left this field open for the states to say, well, look, somebody has to do something here because, you know, we see what's happening to companies, but what happens when a company has its data breached and the data it's holding is the data of other human beings that's now violating their privacy or compromising you know the confidentiality of their information and exposing it and so we need to do something to number 1 control how how companies collect and process that data and retain it and protect it and what they must do whenever they they don't do a good job of that. And we need to let the people know what information is being collected about them, how it's being used, whether it's being sold, what the nature of that information is, and all of that. Yeah. And that's what led to the states coming in with these laws. You know, and they really trailed on, on the GDPR back in uh, 2018. And then we saw the California law come in after that. And then we saw um, some other states, and, and California kind of has one model. Virginia has a little different, a little more business-friendly model. And that's what's led to Texas. I assume Texas is on the business-friendly side. Just. Yeah, Texas is a little more business-friendly. Um, yeah. and, and really, one of the big distinguishing features you see is, like in California, you have a private 
right of action mm -hmm. in the Texas law. You don't have a private right of action. Um, the AG has to bring and enforce these things. Now, just to clarify, when you said the GDPR, that's talking about the European Union. That's the European version of data privacy. I remember that. That yeah, I remember that coming out. But for for anyone that's wondering what the acronyms are, that's what we're referring to. Now, let's let's maybe talk about some some key definitions in this act. And as I understand it, there's personal data and there's biometric data. And so, for the uninitiated, can you tell us what the distinction is? Is there a clear definition of those two terms? So, biometric data is going to be data of things like your face scans, your fingerprints, your voice, things that in essence are you. They're, they're like features about you that can't be changed. So biometrics are things like an iris scan, okay. you know, about mm -hmm. us or, or that are part of our human body, things that we can't just go and update and change and correct. And those have a higher level of sensitivity and protection and concern all over because, you know, once that gets compromised, then you never can really get it back. You can't, you can't claw it back. I guess personal data would then be things like social security numbers, addresses, maybe credit history. Yeah. Yeah, your, yeah, medical history, financial account information, date of birth. Those are kind of some of the classic, you know, definitions that we see. And those are things that are sensitive. Mm -hmm. They are about you. They are yours. You're what we would call the data subject. But they could be, you know, I, I mean, even a, a social security number can be changed. It's very difficult, but yeah. it can be changed. It's not yeah. physically attached to you. It's not right. part of your person. It's not you, a which, manifestation of you. There you go. Okay. So now which, what entities are covered by this act? And, and what I mean by that is obviously there'll be some companies, certain types of companies, and then more broadly, does it also cover law firms? So that's really a great question because I know law firms are what, what we really need to talk about. Um, and sure. I say that because I'm, I've done way too much work this year representing law firms and cyber attacks, data breaches. Um, but this law applies to businesses that either conduct business in Texas or generate products or services consumed by Texas residents, number one. And that either process or engage in the sale of personal data. And what so, does process mean? Like, so there's, there's this concept, concept of processing. So processing could be anything as simple as bringing it in and reviewing it and saving it into your system. Okay. Processing is a very broad, broad definition. So that's really the catch-all that, you know, Every business at some level is processing. Even even law firms. I mean, if even if certainly law firms. If there's a deposition or something like that that you're dealing with, you've got personal data. Yeah, and so where you're really, you know, that that right there would definitely pull in law firms. Now here is the next layer to this app applicability that that probably benefits most law firms here in Texas. Okay, before we go there, Sean, because this is a great place, the next level, we're going to keep people on their seats while we take a quick ad break, and we're going to hear from one of our sponsors, and when we come back, you're going to tell us the next level that could benefit law firms. So guys, stay tuned, because we'll be right back after this. 
The Texas Lawyers Assistance Program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24-7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use, depression, and other mental health issues but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at one 800 343-8527. All right, everybody, we are back with Sean Tuma talking about the Texas Data Privacy and Security Act. And when we left off, he was going to tell us something next level that could actually benefit law firms in this in this act and how it applies. So, Sean, go for it. Tell us what you were going to tell us. The next level here is uh, kind of the third part of this applicability requirement, and that is it only applies to businesses that are not defined by the U.S. Small Business Administration as a small business. Now, that's a very complicated definition once you get down into the SBA requirements, but generally speaking, that would be an independent business that has fewer than 500 employees. So this act applies typically to businesses that would have more than 500 employees or 500 employees or more. So most of our law firms here in Texas are going to be less than 500 employees. And and if they fit within that SBA definition of a small business, then they're going to generally speaking be excluded from, from this act. So small law firms, you know, all but but really your your large probably regional or national or international law firms aren't going to have as much concern about this at least at this point. Now understand, you know, Texas is one state's laws. Mm-hmm. There are all these other ones that are out there, there are more coming. So you could easily be pulled in by those. But here's something I want to make a point of right now. Sure. This act is a big deal because it kind of jumps in line with, with the other states that have been doing it. And as business friendly of a state as Texas is, people, some folks were a little surprised to see us do anything. Um, <laughs> but the idea here, you yes. know, in this personal privacy type type realm. But but part of the thinking was, let's get our version of the law out there on the books so we don't maybe fall into the California model with the private right of action and that kind of stuff. But the most important thing I can tell Texas lawyers and Texas law firms is this law is about compliance on processing and, you know, selling personal data of consumers. The Texas breach notification law applies to every single one of you. So let's not let our focus on complying with this data processing law distract us from the real issue, which is if a small one-person, two-person, five-person Texas lawyer, Texas law firm has a, a compromise of of personal information, a data breach, right. a data breach. They fall under the definition of a, a of the Texas breach notification law, and they then have to comply with that. What would they have to do at that point? Because I mean, if if you're, I, I guess there'd be a notification requirement to those who were affected. 
Yeah, right. so so really, Rocky, it starts with understanding just how easy a data breach can be. Mm-hmm. Um, you see all these emails where someone says, oh, I didn't mean to send that. You know, it was right. just spam that got sent from my account. Mm-hmm. That usually means someone got access to your email account, mm-hmm. username, password, and then sent was able to send out something, whether from a bot or manually or whatnot. That means someone had access to your personal email account. That means whatever information you have in that email account, whether it's personal credit cards, social security numbers, whether it's client, sensitive client data, whether it's trade secret data, whatever it is that is in your email box, your account has now potentially been compromised. We have numerous breaches that we're handling right now from something as simple as an email account access. So imagine your email account, someone gets your username, password, signs in. Um, maybe they send a fictitious invoice to someone to pay up, mm-hmm. you know, see a lot of that, right? You now have the duty to go examine your email account and determine what personal data was in there, or if you're a lawyer, what client data, what sensitive client data, what information that I'm holding as client confidences is in my email account. We now have to assemble that list of everyone potentially impacted, determine what data was impacted, and then notify them if it's your client, maybe it's your client sending you data from others who now implicates the others, but by way of your client. And so you have to go through and make that determination. Then you have to go through the breach notification process that you mentioned, which is Mm -hmm. notifying these individuals if they're all within Texas within 60 days. If you have 250 or more individuals in Texas impacted, notifying the Texas AG within 30 days of this determination. And then go through that whole process of dealing with the fallout from that. So that's the real, real big concern that every Texas lawyer has to worry about. But then, you know, so I've, I've seen these situations where, where I get an email that's, it's, it's almost like a ghost email. They didn't actually go into the, they didn't actually go into Sean Tuma's email and send it from your server. They sent me an email that looks like it's come from you. And if I, if I, if, if I'm able to discern that this doesn't sound like an email from Sean because it's well written and cogent. And so I decide, <laughs> <laughs> I decide I'm going to, you know, Hey, this, this can't be Sean. And so I, I examine it and I figure out, Oh, this is, this is another email address. They just made it look like it's from Sean Tuma. Is that a data breach as well? Okay. Not necessarily. Okay. Because as you said, they didn't have access to, they, they spoofed my, my email address. Spoofed, that's the word. Yeah, they spoofed it. And and look, I just got one of those texts 15 minutes before we started recording from Mm -hmm. a a news personality. I know it's not her, Mm -hmm. but somehow they knew she and I are connected. Mm. So for them to send you an email spoofing my email address, trying to get you to respond, that's an indication that one of our email accounts may be compromised. Mm. Maybe it's mine. Maybe it's yours. Maybe it's someone in that, that you and I both emailed together with. Maybe someone mm. at the state bar. Who knows? But it's somehow they had to know that you and I are connected. Mm. How did they know that? 
that's an indication that it may be one of our accounts. And at that point, we want to go, maybe we bring in a forensics firm to analyze our system. I can tell you if you're using Office 365 Mm -hmm. and you don't have multi-factor authentication enabled, the odds are pretty good that's the account. That's where you start looking first Mm. because that's where so many of them come from. But then you want to look and see, are there forwarding and deletion rules set up in anybody's account that you didn't know about? Because those are the kind of things that threat actors do when they get in. So these are things, you know, you mentioned someone having their data siloed on their own laptop. Ironically, that's becoming more secure sometimes than having it you know, in a cloud because you have it in only one place, right? You only have it in one place and the only way they can get to it is if they get to that laptop. But if they get into your email account because your username and password got compromised and it's connected to your OneDrive that syncs with your, you know, laptop hard drive Mm -hmm. or, or whatnot, maybe now they've got all of it. So this is the kind of stuff that every every Texas lawyer needs to be cognizant of. We're going to talk about maybe some some preventative measures and maybe talk a little bit more about this about this act and the time that we have remaining. So let's take another ad break. We're going to hear from one of our sponsors. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of what Texas lawyers need to do to reduce the odds of getting caught in a data breach. So we'll be back with the expert himself, Sean Tuma. And we are back, guys. We're having, this is, this is an interesting conversation. I think the hard part for most lawyers is most of us are not technologists. We're not, you know, when you tell us about cloud servers and data breaches and spoof emails, we're just, you know, our eyes glaze over. We say, well, I, I'm just trying to practice law. So are there, are there services out there that lawyers can use to try to help monitor their, their systems? And I mean, I, I know they're, they're, my own firm, we use a we use a cloud provider, a cloud service provider, so everything's on a secured platform. But aside from that, are there other things lawyers should be doing to try to protect themselves? Yeah, yeah, Rocky. And and you make a great point about we lawyers just want to practice law. Um, yeah. We also work with a lot of healthcare professionals yeah. and doctors just want to practice medicine. But they still have to protect our patient data, right? right. And we as attorneys our state bar a few years ago recognized this problem and said, look, part of being an ethical lawyer is not just knowing how to go rattle off the elements of a tort or breach of contract, but it's also knowing how to protect your client data and knowing how to use technology in a competent manner. And uh, we have um, in Texas a duty of technological competence and as part of our ethics requirement. And so if if we're not competent in and of it in and of ourselves, and, and I'm not competent these days to manage a network or anything like that, right? We need to rely on experts who are to set up our networks, to set up our system, even if it's a laptop or it's an email service or whatnot, and not just try to wing this stuff anymore. So yes, there are services out there that do that. Obviously, there are the big, big brand name IT service companies mm-hmm. out there, but Expensive those are out too. of the price. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're prohibitive, you know, cost prohibitive for most small firms. But there are quite a few providers out there that can do a really good job 
and do it at a cost-effective price. And, what do you and, Google? You know, what's what's the Google term a lawyer should type in without naming specific companies? But you know, what should they type in when they're trying to find the providers who can do this? Unfortunately, I, I can't send someone to Google because mm-hmm. we just really don't know. We need to ideally go off of personal recommendations. Mm-hmm. If anyone wants to shoot me an email privately and ask me, or I can give you a few names, people want to contact you of companies I know of, you know, out there. But another thing, a little due diligence question that I find is very helpful for asking all vendors, but especially your IT services providers, your security providers, mm-hmm. is do you have cyber insurance? And if so, how much insurance? And do you have errors and emissions coverage? Mm. That way, if you screw up, I at least know there's something there, maybe not to help make me whole, but to help you get back up and running, which I'm going to need to help me get back up and running, right? So look for vendors that have, you know, at least a couple million dollars in coverage, because that'll tell you they're a legit business. They're serious. To that end, I, I think if I'd throw in something, it's my firm has cyber insurance. We've we've got ourselves covered that way. It sounds and it's not that expensive. It's actually it's it's cheaper than people think. It sounds fancy, but there's cyber insurance to be had out there that kind of protects you in case something goes wrong, then at least at least you can make your client because even though they may not have a private right of action under the act, you know, plaintiffs lawyers would they're they're if they, if they have a client who's come to them with something like this, they're going to be creative and they're going to figure out a way, you know, under fraud or negligence or some other, some other theory. So it's not, the, the fact that there's not a private right of action doesn't mean that you can't get sued on this. That private right of action really isn't as impactful as a lot of people think for the reason you just mentioned, it is plaintiff lawyers will find a way. I mean, I I see the lawsuits that get filed in Texas mm-hmm. on data breach cases pop up and sure. and there are many of them. And it doesn't matter that there's not a private right of action. They're still pursuing them. And and uh, and the state AG doesn't need a violation of one of these comprehensive privacy laws to to pursue a remedy against you. State AGs in other states are are becoming much more aggressive. So to that point, having cyber insurance, number one, helps you recover. Number two, it helps you offset some of these costs of these investigations and litigation or whatnot. And one thing I do want to say, though, is we're seeing a lot of law firms falling victims to these what we call business email compromise. Hmm. It's where someone sends the fraudulent wire you know, here's my wiring instructions, send it here. Oh, and right. then they just send the money back in reliance on the email, okay. right? Without picking up the phone and calling. Yeah. Number one, you should never trust an email like that. You should always pick up the phone and call the human being you know, not the, not the phone number in the email. Right. Because they'll change that also. Of course. And many of your cyber insurance policies now before they will cover a loss like that, if the policy even covers it. So you got to make sure it would even cover it. But they now have requirements that say, this is not a, a 
covered loss unless you can show you've picked up the phone and called mm. or you use some second factor means of verifying that was authentic. So you may be excluded from coverage if you don't take that step. So, mm. so you got to know what your policy says, but absolutely every lawyer and law firm should have cyber coverage. One final question that would apply to law firms as well as non-law firms. We've talked about these other states. So far, it's like 11 others, and there's probably going to be others that, that join in the fray of enacting their own versions. If there's all these other states, and if law firms increasingly are going to be doing, doing business across state lines, who do you comply with? And how do you comply with all of them? How do you keep track of all this? Because, I mean, one act is hard enough. Now you've got 11 others and possibly more on the way. Yeah, that's a great question. And unless it's a business that we know is truly only isolated to, say, Texas, then what we do is we pick the one that has the most onerous compliance requirements, and we comply with that one. So usually it's California. California. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if, if you're in a business, if your company has the potential or your law firm has the potential to be pulled within the requirements of the California law, that's usually the one we're going to look to first and then build in any nuances from there. Because, you know, you're, you're already in the compliance business. You're going through all the, the hoops and the hurdles. You might as well set yourself up in a position to be most secure, or most mm. protected, and and alleviate as many um, questions and concerns um, as possible. So just because people moving here from California doesn't mean they can get away from California. Remember that Californians, the data privacy laws will follow you. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's exactly right, and and the same with the breach notification laws. Mm. So you know, all all states have their own breach notification requirements, and because these are consumer protection laws, the law follows the consumer. So if you have consumers, if you're a Texas business, only a Texas law firm, Mm -hmm. only practicing here in Texas, but you have clients, you know, you're a family law firm, they move to California or wherever else, and you have their data here, you may not be subject to the California data processing law, but you are subject then to that California breach notification law. And mm-hmm. so wherever that individual resides, that's the law that you have to comply with on the breach notification requirements. That adds a lot of complexity to breach notification, um, especially for small firms. I mean, imagine the data you have in the discovery, you know, family firms, um, you know, firms like that that do family sure. law or estate planning or estates, you know, tax absolutely. advice or criminal or whatnot. Um, PI firms with medical records and all that stuff. Think about all that personal information you have, not just your client data, but personal data of others, you know, that you've got to then deal with. So what do you do? You protect the heck out of that information. Encrypt it if you can, silo it in in walled off, you know, areas of your network that folks can't get to, you know, protect it as much as you can. And and destroy it on a on a regular basis. Have have a document retention policy and and then don't keep that for longer than you have to would probably Rocky, be the other part of it. You know, somewhere deep within your heart you've got I'm a data protection attorney somewhere in there because what you just said is 
quite possibly the most valuable piece of information out there. At the end of the day, we're focused on protecting data. And if you don't have that data, then you don't have to worry about protecting it. So don't collect what you don't need. And when you don't need it anymore, get rid of it. Get rid of the evidence, folks. Get rid of the (laughs) evidence. Kidding. Don't do that. Well, Sean, we are at the end of our time, but I want to thank you for coming out. It's always always fun having you on the podcast. It's always a pleasure, Rocky. And uh, I enjoy our conversations. And it's always a pleasure to be able to, to help out with the State Bar and be a part of it. Absolutely. Well, again, folks, Sean Tuma, reach out to him if you have any questions or if you want, if you want any, any tips on good vendors to reach out to. And of course, I want to thank you for tuning in and I want to encourage you to stay safe and be well. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off for now. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to texasbar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.